All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Crypto 101 podcast. I'm your host, Bryce. Uh, and I'm not joined by Pizza Mind today. He's still in Taiwan uh, doing God knows what. No, I'm kidding. He is at a uh, crypto conference uh, reporting, doing some live streams and some vlogging. Uh, check us out on the YouTube channel, Crypto 101 Podcast on YouTube. But today I'm joined by an awesome guest uh, from the Forta Network, the lead, the gentleman who's in charge of the ecosystem, uh, Andrew Beal. Uh, man, welcome to the Crypto 101 Podcast. I hope hope you're ready. <laughs> Bryce, thanks for having me. Yep. Ready to roll. Okay, cool, man. Like, so yeah, as we were catching up before the before the recording, you were kind of telling me about like how you were getting into the industry, and it's it's a pretty interesting uh, winding trail. Um, you 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 have a law background. Um, you're an attorney by trade. So, can you kind of tell us what it was that attracted you to the wild west of of, of finance and digital media rights? Sure. So my, I think unlike. Unlike a lot of people in this space early on, like I did not have an ideological sort of hook into crypto. Um, you weren't like a crypto sort of like anarchist or one of these guys who was like, you know, power to the people and de- decentralization. That wasn't your thing, really. It was not my thing. No, <laughs> I didn't even know what, what, you know, decentralized systems were when I got into it. I, I went to college. I was a music business major in college. I thought I was going to be a, you know, a producer when I, when I finished Nice. And I ended up going to law school and then ended up working with startups when I when I graduated. And I very quickly stumbled on to I was in Los Angeles at the time and I very quickly stumbled onto the the small but like really interesting kind of crypto scene that existed in LA in 2013. And I was the only ago. lawyer the only, you know, corporate lawyer that was paying any attention to what was going on and in LA at least. There were a couple other lawyers that were in San Francisco and New York, they were doing some stuff. But uh, in LA, it was just me, which which was great because I was fresh out of school. I didn't have any experience. I was by no means like a seasoned attorney, but I nonetheless like got to work with really cool companies because by virtue you of no one else. You were willing to kind of go where a lot of attorneys weren't willing to go, I guess. No competition. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a lot of money to be made, you know, representing crypto companies back then. Um, but that was how I cut my teeth. And um, I met a lot of people and... Uh, did that for a couple of years, great experience, and then transitioned into uh, kind of consulting in 2016 and joined Ernst & Young. And that was the genesis of their blockchain team. Mm. So I moved to moved to San Francisco and um, for five years, you know, worked with EY's clients, which were primarily large exchanges and custodians. So like your Coinbase's, Binance's, Anchorage's, Gemini's, Kraken's helping them become sort of more sophisticated financial institutions uh, and then working with like the fintechs and the banks because they were all interested in onboarding crypto as an asset class, either buying and selling or custody services. So that was anyway, that was that was sort of what I did there. And then um, uh, early last year, early 2021, um, left EY, joined Open Zeppelin. And we very we soon after that spun the Forda network out of Open Zeppelin. Ah, uh, and and launched the Forda Network last fall, so we've been live for a little over a year now. And I've been, you know, neck deep in uh, smart contract security and threat detection uh, ever since. So, yeah, no, I, I kind of picture like just in my mind, I, I you know, I'm going through your website and learning about Forta, and some of our analysts here at Crypto 101 have gone done a deep dive and are really actually, you know. They were texting me like, dude, this is actually a really exciting one. They've been doing a lot of cool stuff. And uh, I remember Open Zeppelin, you know, I met 
open Zeppelin like at ETH San Francisco, like 2019, like years ago. And I, I remember a lot of people used uh, open Zeppelin to develop all sorts of different applications. And so sure. it's really cool that like from that vantage point, like touching so many applications basically from open Zeppelin, pivoting that to now the security platform. But I kind of like picture like, you know, this threat monitoring kind of like out of the movies, just like where you have like this big war room and you have blinking lights and like, oh, there's a hack going on on Binance Smart Chain. And then there's Bitcoin getting withdrawn and there's an anomaly over here uh, at one exchange. But like, what is it actually like? Um, it's probably not an accurate like uh, depiction of what actually goes on at, at threat detection. So so what actually is occurring behind the curtains? No, I like your I do. I like your visual. So I think those types of that that type of kind of monitoring, you know, visual that you just um, sort of drew there, I think is something that does exist in Web two. Actually, like you know, large teams like Microsoft and Google and others have, you know, it might not be a single room of people, but it might be a um, you know a distributed team of people that are actually monitoring threats in real time and you know, dismissing them as false positives or investigating other ones that seem more legitimate and then, you know, fixing them or, you know, blocking that out, doing whatever they need to do to sort of minimize the impact. We don't really have that happening yet in Web3, I think primarily because just the the security function is still pretty immature. I guess just to give listeners a little bit of background and kind of what the state of Web3 security looks like, Seems like there's a you hack. Know, this is a very, <laughs> it's a very, yeah, this is a very developer centric, you know, sort of industry right now. And so a lot of the, I think because of that, uh, a lot of the focus has been on uh, addressing vulnerabilities in the code. And so that's why you see a lot of, you know, that's why you see protocol teams getting audits uh, before they go live, doing formal verification on their code before they go live, using open Zeppelin contracts, you know, to try and yep. minimize like the, the amount of, you know, sort of new code that you're developing using templates is, is better if you can do it. And then bug bounties are obviously very focused on code level vulnerabilities. And that's because like, you know, these, these things are built, they're put into the wild and then, you know, they're supposed to operate fairly autonomously. And like there is a community of people around these protocols that, you know, can implement changes and help steward it forward. But, you know, the goal is for it to sort of run without a lot of human involvement. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, a lot of the focus is on the code being as good as possible, which is a great it's a great it's a very sort of worthy endeavor. But there's a lot of other aspects of security that. Uh, have been underinvested in. And one of them is what Forda does, which is real-time monitoring and alerting. You can also call this runtime security. Um, so watching transactions and activity in real time to try and identify high-risk things, suspicious things, actually malicious things, mm. and then trying to um, you know prevent them or at least like minimize the damage from, from them, right? So that's a very common practice in Web2, in Web3, you know, up until a year ago, there really wasn't any real-time security monitoring happening, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, they're just, um, you don't, a lot of teams don't have full-time security people on staff, right? Like DeFi teams are by nature, like very lean because the whole goal is to decentralize these, these systems. Um, so you don't want a lot of, you don't want a bulky, you know, um, a bulky team that you have to support, right? Uh, 
And so anyway, for that reason, you know, you just don't see a lot of full-time security people working at, at DeFi protocols. And that unfortunately, uh, you know, has a negative impact on the level of security sophistication that, that exists. Um, and there's also just not a lot of great tools to do this either. So anyway, so Forta is sort of one, uh, you know, Forta focuses on this real-time monitoring and alerting pillar of the security stack. Um, and it has a really close relationship with um, incident response, which is, you know, what you do once you get, once that red light goes off and you, you know, you, you find out about something critical um, or there's a threat that's imminent, then the question becomes, you know, what do you do about it? So that's right. the, that's the emergency and incident response function. And that's also a very uh, immature function um, at least, you know, with respect to sort of uh, DeFi projects and NFT projects. Um, it's a very like manual thing today that you don't have a lot of automated uh, response mechanisms. Um, and the, you know, the, the reactions that teams do have are also like, you know, pretty, um, pretty surface level. So um, those are two areas that I think are going to evolve a lot over the next couple of years. And hopefully, you know, Forda can, can play a part in that. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that, um, you know, you guys are, are definitely doing um, your diligence and you guys definitely have a lot of, um, you know, real, you've got, you've got a lot of traction, I want to say, and, and you guys are clearly uh, doing a lot of research because I'm looking at your guys' site and uh, I, I love it. You guys show a list of all the hacks, which probably racks up a, a, a billion dollars now at this point or something more. Um, actually just between the first two hacks is over a billion dollars, Ronin Bridge and Poly Network. And then to the next side of it, you, you have a big breakdown of how Forta could have kind of, uh, you know, blocked this attack or alerted to it and minimized damage. And so I don't want to ask you to go through all, you know, dozen or two dozen of these hacks and how Forta could have performed in every one, but is there an instance of, um, you know, a, a highlight that you want to share with everybody? Um, from some of these major hacks, the, the Ronin Bridge, the Poly Network, Badger DAO. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, let me let me provide some more context though into um, some of these hacks too, just so people kind of understand like where you know where the where the vulnerabilities are and kind of how how Forda um, relates to that. So um, mm-hmm. first thing, uh, you know we we like to throw out the term like web three a lot when we talk about DeFi protocols and bridges. But um, the reality is like, there's a lot of web two components to all of these systems, right? Like every, the web three component of a DeFi protocol is the smart contracts, right? And the oracles and the, the governance and the token. Um, but there are front ends. There are, you know, like there's the application sort of aspect of it, right? There are APIs, there's backend databases, like all that, all this stuff is just like sort of traditional software, internet, web two infrastructure, right? Um, a lot of things rely on Cloudflare and AWS and like a lot of traditional infrastructure. And so those are also things that need to be, those are, those are components of a DeFi protocol or a bridge that need to be secured. Private key management is also like not a web three, a unique web three thing, right? Private keys existed long before Bitcoin and um, securing those, the private key material was a thing long before Bitcoin. Um, 
And so that's something that a lot of teams struggle with is just securing their private keys, right? Like securing your passwords effectively um, and having access control, good access controls and permissions and segregation of duties and all these things that are very, you know, just sort of like table stakes uh, when you start talking about Web2 security. And a lot of the hacks that you just mentioned, um, like the Ronin bridge, for example, I believe, uh, was actually wasn't a, it wasn't a, a compromise of like a smart contract or it was it was a it was a compromising some web two component of that system, right? And so there's so much emphasis placed on like getting a smart contract security audit and making sure that your contract code is good and making sure that your oracles are secure and all that stuff. But there's this other population of things that are also like attack vectors that if you don't secure those, you're just as open to an attack, right? As is yeah. if you were to like your operational up. security, I guess. Sure. I mean that. Operational security is, is sort of one aspect of it. Yep. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so a, a lot of a lot of the the Badger DAO hack, like a lot of these things are that was a, I believe that was a front end. Um, you know, like the website was not uh, secure. Somebody like re- that, that. redirected a URL or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, you could have you could have the the most hardened smart contract code in the world. You could have you could have gone through a dozen different audits and formal verification um, and still get hacked because you haven't secured these other aspects of your, mm-hmm. of your, your product. Right. So um, I just, anyway, I just wanted to point that out because uh, a what lot about, of the hacks are due to web two vulnerabilities. Yeah. And, and I think that's actually a great time to ask, like, what about for an individual crypto investor, or crypto trader who, who's not deploying smart contracts, who's not managing a smart contract that's holding, you know, millions of dollars, but they're just, you know, trading their balance, 10,000, maybe whatever, 20,000 bucks. But, you know, that's a lot of money for, for, for somebody. Um, what do you tell them? Like, what are the, the three most important mistakes everybody makes or, or however you want to slice it? Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Eufy Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So for a, it's a good it's a good question. I think for an individual investor, or actually anyone that's interacting with, you know, a DeFi protocol, whether you're, you know, borrowing on Compound or Aave or, um, you know, borrowing against your ETH on Maker or, um, you know, doing something more um, yield farming related on some of these other protocols, right? Like, I think one of the, um, one just kind of rule of thumb is like, always make sure that you are, you are actually connecting your wallet to a legitimate website to a legitimate application, right? There's a lot of, as you, as you mentioned, right. Um, with Badger Dow, right. There's a lot of spoofing that happens with URLs. There's a lot of, there's a lot of malicious websites that are created that are supposed to look like the original one to throw you off, but they're at, it's actually an attacker that set that up. Um, so that's one, right. Just have some general awareness about like the products that you're interacting with and making sure that they're legitimate. Um, and that you're actually at the right website. Um, so that's one. The second is that, um, when you are um, connecting your wallet and and approving tokens to be used, and then signing a transaction through your MetaMask wallet, for example, right? Like, um, pause and make sure that you you understand kind of what you're granting to that contract, right? Make you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of scams that will trick you know unassuming retail investors into granting approval to use all of the tokens in their wallet, right? No legitimate application is ever going to ask you to do that, right? They're going to ask you if just you, to use the, you know, just Ethereum or just that one right. ERC-20 token. Yeah, exactly. If, if you're swapping a token on Uniswap, Uniswap's just going to ask for approval for USDC, right? Or ETH or whatever token you're trying to swap, right? It's not going to ask for approval for all your tokens, <laughs> all the tokens in your wallet. So if you ever see sort of omnibus or mass kind of approval requests, right? Like that, that's one red flag right there. Um, so, and unfortunately that's, that's much, that's very common. And um, I mean, more money, more money is lost by individuals to scams than, you know, than smart, than protocols lose to exploits. Right. I, th- I think it's yeah. like three times, three times the amount of money is lost just by your average, your average wow. retail investor every year. Yeah. So <laughs> I wonder how much money is lost just by bad trades, <laughs> just buying high and selling low. No. Oh man, yeah, I don't know. I'm, Can your I'm sure system I've prevent that? I've I've definitely contributed a great deal to that number. I'm sure. <laughs> well, well, speaking of uh, large numbers, uh, thirty-six billion dollars in total value locked uh, that you are monitoring. Uh, is that correct? I think that's uh, like over half of. Um, all the, the, the DeFi TVL, they're, they're, it's pretty impressive. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. So, um, and the, yeah, the, the, I guess the way that to kind of back into those numbers. So um, there are a lot of, a lot of the, many of the large DeFi protocols uh, like Maker, like Compound, Lido, Aave, Balancer, et cetera, use Forda for some aspect of like their operational or security um monitoring. So that's where those statistics, gotcha. um, come from. Um, and guys like uh, maker Lido DYDX. I mean, these are big names. Yep. It's not just, uh, yep. some, some protocols that fell off the turnip truck and are looking to, uh, a, a new sort of fringe, 
sort of uh, security system. This is this is pretty much adopted by like the biggest protocols. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I, I don't think it's surprising that um, a lot of the large protocols are the ones that are investing in this aspect of security because they have a high risk profile, right? They're they have a big target on their back. Yeah, um, they get a lot of attention from bad actors, and therefore they invest a lot in security, you know, more so than like a brand new protocol would, right. That has a lower, a lower risk profile. So like, you know, the, the way that the way we think about it is that, you know, if you're, if you're, if, if you and I, Bryce are launching a protocol today, we have zero TVL, you know, the ROI that we're going to get from like investing in a bunch of security tools is pretty low because there's no money to, there's no money to steal. Right. Yeah. So, um, therefore we're going to invest the minimum amount necessary. We're probably going to get an audit and that's probably it. Right. But as our TVL grows, let's say we get to 100 million in TVL and we've got, you know, a couple thousand daily active users. Well, now there's a meaning, there's meaningful money in there, right? And we have an obligation to protect that. Um, and so we're going to invest more in security than a team with zero TVL would, right? Where, it, you know, now scale that up even further. If you're Compound or Lido or Maker or, you know, Balancer or whoever, and you have hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in, in TVL, then you're going to be making even more investments in security right. because your risk profile is higher and there's more attack, you know, more, more hackers um, that are trying to penetrate your system. So, yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of like building, um, building the safe and then also building the reserves in the safe at the same time. And it's like uh, kind of a, a new way of a new way of doing things. But yeah, I mean, you're not really going to want to spend a bunch of money on a really expensive safe before you have money to protect so it's chicken and the egg thing, but um, exactly, yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. Did uh, you guys see just like kind of from a, uh, a relevancy standpoint, like FTX is kind of the most recent collapse. Um, were you guys on top of that? Did you guys see like some anomalies where you're like, there's not enough money to get out? What was your, what was going on during that whole thing? Or were you guys looking at specific projects that you were working with? So for the, I guess let me answer this and give a little bit more context into sort of how Forda works too. Um, the short answer is that, um, you know, no, we didn't have a lot of visibility into that, but I'll explain, I'll explain sort of why that is. Um, so Forda, the Forda network is like a giant security camera and alarm system, uh, monitoring mostly DeFi activity today. Um, okay. but we're, we're monitoring, on-chain activity across the large EVM network. So Ethereum, Polygon, BNB Chain, Arbitrum, Optimism, Phantom, et cetera. Uh, and there are two components to this big security camera and alarm system. There are, we have scan nodes and we have bots. And scan uh, bots are like little cameras that any developer can install. Um, sort of the same way that a developer would like publish a smart contract to Ethereum. Any developer can also publish a monitoring bot onto the Forda network. Um, and it's effectively free to do today. Um, and then once, once that little camera gets deployed on the network, it gets randomly assigned to different scan nodes to run it. Um, and so, you know, the, it's the equivalent of like a bank having a physical camera, like pointed at the vault door. It, you know, Forda is doing that in sort of in a virtual way for DeFi protocols. Right. So we're monitoring, you know, the, Monitoring multi-sigs, monitoring oracles, monitoring pause functionality, monitoring liquidity, monitoring um, 
um, you know, other balances that are relevant for that system. And then also monitoring for threats, right? We're, we're, we're also trying to identify threats like in real time. Um, so that's how the Forda network um, works. And that's what, that's what we have. That's what the network has visibility into, right? Only things that are on chain on those, those seven EVM networks uh, today. So with respect to something that happens at a centralized exchange, um, you know, there, there would have been sort of money movement on chain, right? If, if FTX, for example, was like moving customer funds to Alameda, for example, but like, that's not a, you know, that wasn't a DeFi protocol that, 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 that the network was monitoring. So there probably were some alerts that may have fired on that activity, but, um, um, you know, no one was, um, uh, no one was sort of paying attention to that or sort of analyzing that in, in real time. Yeah. Um, I, I can see make- how I can see how a system like this could not only be extremely helpful for a project um, who who has their own smart contract and who's using it as security, but really also for a hedge fund uh, mm-hmm. who's looking to make sort of actionable decisions based off of some of these alerts, like liquidity. I hear right. Uh, okay, so maybe during this whole thing, the liquidity of the FTT token just went out and so you get an alert you're like oh my god like uh, let me pay attention to this position um do you guys like as a business model i mean i see you guys are invested in by coinbase ventures andreessen horowitz uh placeholder blockchain capital dcg i mean these are the who's who of investing um i imagine they you know they're they're interested in maybe selling some of this data to hedge funds yeah so uh hedge funds i think the the value of forda uh, you know, extends to anyone that has exposure to, um, you know, on-chain uh, liquidity uh, or, um, you know, code of, of a DeFi project, right? So if you're, if you're a retail investor and you have, you know, you have money locked up in a DeFi project, then you have an interest in sort of understanding what the you know what the security posture is of that system. If you're a, a hedge fund and you're actively trading, borrowing, and lending um, across the DeFi ecosystem, then you have you know interest in the security posture of these systems. You also want to know in real time if something bad is happening too, right? Because you may want, you know, you may have an opportunity to get out of that position or close a, you know, close a, a loan and, and maybe, you know, pull out liquidity if you can. Um, a lot of hedge funds are also venture investors, like in a lot of large DeFi protocols too. Um, and so um, we found like VCs and funds that have, uh, that are just, you know, that are, um backers of these uh, protocols um, want want access to this real-time security intel as well, um, just because they, they want to help out the team um, mm-hmm. if they can. Yeah, it's just kind of um, like in everybody's best interest to have uh, working security. Like if that gets yep. pushed forward and if people invest in that, like that's going to push the entire industry forward. Yep, yep. So I think the, you know, in terms of the sort of the value proposition of all these Forda alerts, um, you know, the, the, our biggest kind of target are the DeFi protocols themselves, right? Because we want them to know when something bad is happening and then be able to react as fast as possible to it. 
Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're the primary audience. Um, but hedge funds are also an audience. Um, a lot of, uh, centralized exchanges and custodians also have an interest in, in this type of intelligence too, because, um, you know, they, they, they support a lot of the assets like these, these DeFi tokens, right. Whether it's Uniswap or compound or MKR, or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have an interest in monitoring these protocols as well. Um, and then, um, there are also a lot of like data providers out there. Um, like, um, um, you know, think about, I'm just going to throw out some random company names like Masari and the tie and others, right. Who are providing a lot of like news and data mm-hmm. about this space to, uh, you know, investors. I'm a subscriber and to both of those, companies. by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great so services. I think, um, yeah, those are, those are potential, um, you know, avenues for distributing this intelligence as well. So. Love it. Um, so if, if we kind of switch gears, um, you know, talking about regulation and I'm curious, like, you, you know, you're, you're a lawyer in the space uh, since 2013. So uh, longer than most people have even, you know, heard of crypto. Right. So we've seen how it's progressed and where we're at now. And it's now kind of like in a little bit of a gray area. I mean, have we always not been in a gray area, but like, where's it going and what are you preparing for? Right. You're, you're, you know, how are you kind of thinking about where this all plays out in the next couple of years? Um, are all tokens going to be securities? Um, is, you know, I don't know. What, what do you have any hot takes? I should say. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do, I'll do <laughs> that game. Um, my so I have a couple thoughts. None of these are particularly relevant to Forda, but um, my cool. my my thought on kind of DeFi is that um, I think that DeFi activity. So if you think about like just the the tech stack that exists, right? We have, um, and I'll try and like explain this simply so everyone kind of visualize <laughs> this, but. Um, like the, the web three tech stack today, or like the crypto tech stack is you have, um, you know, a blockchain layer, a base layer at the bottom, right. That can be Ethereum. It can be Bitcoin. And then below that is like all the internet infrastructure, right? Like, you know, HTTP and, uh, IP, I guess. Uh, yeah. All these, yeah. All these, all these sort of core internet protocols. Cause you know, all crypto and all these other blockchain networks sit on top of the internet infrastructure. Right. So, so that's all there. So you have the base layer, your blockchain layer one, and then you have, um, you know, your, your, uh, assets. Um, and then you have your DeFi protocols above that. And then you have above that, you have like your applications that can be like your websites, your wallets, et cetera, like the user interfaces that mm-hmm. you use to interact with all of this infrastructure. And, uh, like right now, like, you know, we're, we're directly interacting with oftentimes directly interacting like through a, through a UI with like a smart contract with, with a protocol, right? If you're, if you're interacting with compound or Aave, et cetera, right? Like you're using some front end, but you're directly, you're directly interacting with the, the Aave contracts. And, um, I don't know that that's always going to be the, the case. Um, There's got to be an intermediary there maybe. Yeah. The user experience is not great. Um, you know, it's really catered to a kind of crypto power user, um, and I have this kind of just kind of hunch that more DeFi activity, more, I should say, more of the uh, sort of retail transaction flow is going to move towards like centralized platforms, right? Like, uh, 
a Coinbase or a Binance, for example. And those those platforms will be connected to the large DeFi protocols like mm. Uniswap and Compound and others. And you'll be interacting with those through those regulated platforms because they want to know who you are, right? And they'll also be able to protect you better, right? Um, they have customer support teams. They have insurance. They have all these things that like you typically expect when you're engaging in a financial transaction that you don't get when you are just using your MetaMask wallet, interacting with the DeFi protocol directly, right? Totally. Um, so I think that's I think that's probably what will happen over time. Uh, but for to force that to happen, you need regulation to sort of to to, to demand that, right? Um, and until then, I think you're still going to have a lot of, you know, you're going to have a lot of individuals directly, you know, interacting with you know um, DeFi protocols through a, through a DApp. Um, and there's probably some some small number of people that will always do that. Um, but anyway, so that, I guess that's one, I don't know if that's a hot take, but just kind of a hunch that I, 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 I Hey, I mean, I, we, I like to ask that question a lot for, for people that do have a background in law, just about what they see. And, and I haven't heard that one before, but it's really fascinating. It makes sense. It's like, you know, these maybe exchanges will offer two kinds of orders. You know, you could ha- or make an order through the centralized little like, order book, um, and paste a limit order, or you could click, you know, I want to trade through the AMM or through Uniswap or something. And then Coinbase could route that order and then, you know, be providing liquidity on there. You could have other market makers, other exchanges, all using that one kind of centralized liquidity pool uh, to, to make transactions against. And that's actually, that's probably the way it's going to go. Um, it's very prescient of you. Yeah. So that that's one. Um and then the other is uh, my other hot take is probably, I think a lot of people probably agree with this is like around CBDCs. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think that the, I don't think any government should like build their own digital currency. Um, most money that's in circulation is already digital today. I don't know what the percentage is today, but like something like 90, 98% of us dollars is already digital, right? There's no, there's no dollar or coin in circulation, right? That represents right, it, right? It's a number right? on a um, bank account. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a number on a bank account and it's, it's, you know, that money's created by the fed when like, when banks draw down on their fed accounts, um, they borrow when they borrow from the government. Um, and so that's how dollars practically, that's how most dollars get created and put into circulation. And so, so we already have digital, most money's already digital. So that's one thing. And then two is that um, if you think about uh, sort of why we already have stable coins, like USDC is a great example, right? Like it's it's already a, it's an implementation of the dollar on a blockchain, right? And that, the reason, you know, Coinbase and Circle did that is because we didn't have a stable store of value on a blockchain, right? And we needed one because that's a sort of a core a core component of like any financial system, you need a stable store of value. So in the absence of like the U S government issuing a dollar on Ethereum, private tech companies said, well, we'll implement the dollar on a blockchain, which is a really, you know, it's sort of a kind of a um, table stakes thing. Right. Uh, And so, and they're really good at implementing that, but they're not creating money, right? They're just taking a dot. They're taking a dollar from, someone's bank account and then they're locking it up and then they're issuing a stable coin against it. Right. So, um, I think that's a great model and I think, and it's, it's doing, and I I think the last statistic I saw too was that, um, something like 99 point, 
something percentage of stable coins in existence are pegged to the dollar. So if I'm the U.S. government, I'm looking at that and thinking, wow, Circle and Coinbase and all these crypto companies are actually helping promote the dollar globally right. better than we could. Right? It's a great point. It's helping, it's helping sort of entrench uh, the dollar as like the, you know, the reserve currency of the world. Um, and they don't have to do anything, right? Like the, all these private companies are doing it for them. So I see that as a, a huge headwind, sorry, a huge tailwind for like the dollar being adopted in more places um, or being used in more places. And I also just don't think that the government's ever going to be as good as a tech company is at like implementing something on a blockchain. Like let tech companies worry about implementation. Governments should just worry about like monetary supply and, mm -hmm. and policy, right? So if, if they can sort of work together on that and let government do policy and let tech do the tech implementation and they can partner up, like that's basically what's happening now. It's just like, they're not calling it a partnership. It's just kind of happened that way. It's evolved that way. Um, but that, that, that seems to be, at least to me, that's how I, that's how I think uh, it should work or continue to work. So I hope that that's what happens. I hope we just use dollar backed stable coins and like the U S government doesn't try and, you know, gum things up by issuing like an official U S dollar stable coin. Right. Yeah. So. Kind of letting the, the free market work itself out and, and see, yeah. I mean, that to me looks like the most logical path forward as well. Um, and it's a great point. Um, so before we let you go, uh, Andrew, I'm, I'm curious just for our, our listeners at home, what's one other crypto company or crypto person or protocol, just one other thing that, you know, you think listeners should probably uh, research or that has impressed you. That's cool. Cutting edge. Ooh. Um, great. Kind of an open-ended, nice, soft question to close things out. <laughs> yep. Great question. Um, I just got off. I was talking with someone uh, from a project called Eigenlayer wow. earlier today. I've never heard it's of this one. E-I-G-E-N-L-A-Y-E-R. Eigenlayer. Eigenlayer. And they're uh, they're they're fairly new, um, but they are helping projects sort of bootstrap um, economic security by leverage. You can you know leverage uh, ETH ETH validators and ETH staking to sort of secure a new network if you're if you're just launching and you don't have like your token doesn't have a lot of value and things like that. So oh, it's um, like merge mining with Bitcoin. Yeah, kinda. exactly. It's it's so take that concept and apply it to like securing a network with with like the ETH staking that happens on Ethereum. Totally cool. And, and letting other companies sort of piggyback off of that to secure their own network. So really cool. Um, they're really early in development, but um, I think it's fascinating. And I think it solves a lot of problems for for new projects. So that might be one to, to keep an eye on. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And that's a, I love asking this question because I always get to hear from the smartest people in the industry, what's on the bleeding edge? What are they excited about? And then that gets everybody here at Crypto 101 excited. So uh, I'm going to go do my research on Eigenlayer. I'm going to keep uh, tabs on Forta Network and your journey, Andrew. Um, so where can people follow you? Where can people keep tabs as well on Forta? Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, we post a lot on Twitter, at uh, Forta Network. Um, so you can follow our, our, Twitter, handle, our Twitter handle there. Um, and uh, our website is Forta.org. So you can learn more about us there. Yep. Okay. Well, awesome. Uh, appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on, spending 40 minutes with us. 
Um, and we hope to have you back on again one of these days uh, with some more maybe breaking news about how uh, Forta saved a, you know, a hack from happening or whatever. You just let us know when something big happens and, and we'll be here to, to highlight it. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thanks cool. for the time, Bryce. Take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.